Go ahead and take your Bibles, place your Bibles in your lap, but we're not going to be in Genesis this morning. Maybe we'll look at one passage, but this morning we're going to look at the topic of driven. That's the title of the sermon. I just thought again I would share with you an email, not an email, a text right before I came up. Again, Lisa's mom texted me and said, I'm praying that you would be faithful and have an anointed teaching and good fellowship. So we, I showed that because Lisa and I and the kids, we just were able to see mom uh, just a few days ago, last week, and we were able to spend seven different times with mom and dad. They're an assisted living place. So it was good to be able to spend that time with them. And she says hello to all of you. If you remember, she would come several times a year, but now she's not able to do that. So she sends you greetings and misses seeing you all, but praise God for her faithfulness. Let me pray, and then we'll get into God's Word. Father, we thank you for your perfect faithfulness, and we do thank you for your Word. We believe your Word is true. And Lord, we pray according to 1 Thessalonians 2, what says, and Paul says, that your word does its work in those who believe. Lord, we, we believe, and so we pray that you, by your Spirit, work your word into our hearts and change us, Lord, that we might become more like Jesus. We give you praise, Lord. Amen. This past week on vacation... I don't think I even looked at the book of Genesis one time. That's part of the reason why I'm not preaching on Genesis this morning. But I did read many Psalms. Psalm 46, Psalm 19, parts of Psalm 119, Psalm 63, Psalm 96. Trying to go back and memorize some Psalms that I had memorized earlier, but now have forgotten. Can you really say that you've memorized them if you've forgotten them? In the past, I had memorized them, but I have forgotten. So I spent most of my quiet times going over these different passages that I memorized, but they've drifted from my mind. But as I did that, there was a pressing thought that kept coming back into my head, and that is, what am I driven by? What really makes me tick? And I thought even about for Pilgrim Bible Church, what are we driven by? What makes us tick? What really gets me out of bed in the morning? What gets you out of the bed in the morning? Rainy day after rainy day after rainy day after rainy day. You go to L.A., it's bright and sunny, smoggy at times, but bright and sunny. You come back to Washington, it's summertime, it's June. And what do you have? Rain. What gets you out of bed? What what keeps us going, even through the dark, stormy times of life? What keeps you going? The family that you know of, that we've shared, that has many... Difficult challenges, I can't share much, but now there's a nether challenge, a brand new challenge that they have. 
But what keeps them going in life? It can be hard. What drives us? And you have as a motto, as a principle of success, that those that are driven are the ones that have true success in life. If you want to have success, you have to be a driven person. Is that correct? Well, in many ways, yes, if you are a driven person, it's possible that you could gain the whole world. Is that success? In a way, in a narrow way, it is success if you gain the whole world. Well, what about spiritually? If you want to have spiritual success, do you have to be driven? What does that mean? What does the word driven mean? Well, perhaps we could say it this way. To have spiritual success, what directs your life? What motivates you? What inspires you? What, what encourages you? What energizes you? That's what I mean when I say driven. What, what causes you to be propelled or directed forward? Is it fear? Laziness? Popularity? Sports? Maybe it's something good. Maybe it's family. Family's not bad. Family's good. Church? Uh, a job? Putting bread on the table? <laughs> Some things can be bad that drives us. Some things are good that drives us. But what are the best things that can have everlasting, eternal fruitfulness, fullness, and success? That's really what we want to be driven by. And scriptures at least give three answers. At least three. There's, I'm certain, more. I had more. I had four or five. I've tried to trim it down to the top three. And we, again, are answering this question, what really drives us? What directs us? What helps us to get out of bed every day? With joy and fruitfulness. Well, number one, first answer of what should at least drive us is this. Since the word of God has priority over all other Authorities be driven by the Bible. What should we be driven by? The Bible. God's Word. Since God's Word is the, the highest authority, this written, external, objective Word of God should be that instrument that drives us. Prioritize it above all other authorities and words. Privilege the Bible above all other, all other narratives that the whole world gives. Follow the Bible. Privilege it. This is the inerrant, God-produced, holy scripture. That's why we say sola scriptura, scripture alone. It is the highest authority that we have for faith and practice. What do we base this upon? Well, as I said, Psalm, I, I was reading Psalms, Psalm 19, verse 9, sorry, verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul, reviving the soul, causing the soul to repent. The testimony of the Lord is sure, 
making wise the simple. I'm a simple man and I have a simple mind. I need the testimony of Yahweh, his sure word, to make me wise. The precepts of the Lord, of Yahweh, are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I believe I've shared this before. I watched this YouTube video where this man got honey out of a killer beehive, I believe, in the Arizona desert and some rocks. And he took this fresh honey. He took this honey and he also had regular honey, fresh honey, from a regular beehive. And he compared the taste of both of them. The killer bee honey was much, much more sweeter. And what did he do? Did he just stick a little bit of honey on his finger and just go like this? Mmm. He took that honey, and you can watch it afterwards. Ask me, the YouTube channel. He took that honey, and I mean, he put a wad as big as his hand could hold and stuffed it in his mouth, and his cheeks were like big chipmunk giant cheeks. And then he even rubbed it all over his face. Why? Because it was what? Really, really, really good. Really sweet. Here, David is saying the word of God is like that. You, you don't just take a little bit of it and go, oh, thank you. You take all the word you can get and you just cover your whole soul. You, you base your whole soul in the word of God. Why? Because it's all these things. It's perfect. It's sure. It's right. It endures forever. It's true. And it's better than gold because you could be a driven person and many ways and and, in the sense of the world and perhaps you gain the whole world but you die and then what what then you still have forever forever and forever you could have failure but if you surrender to the script of God's word you can have true success there's so many other places that we have in the Word of God. And I'm just going to share just a few of them to remind ourselves about the nature of God's Word. It is inerrant. It is God-produced. It is right. It is true. It is accurate in all that it says about everything. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, you're familiar with. My pages are sticking together. How may a young man keep his way pure? By hiding the word of God in my heart. Oh, it won't flip over. Sorry. There it is. Your word, verse 11. We'll start verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have what? Treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Treasure it. Why? Because it's right. It's pure. It's true. 
it endures forever. And we're all familiar with Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, that the man of God, the person of God, could be adequate, ready to do every good thing. And when it says all scripture, Second Timothy three sixteen, when it says all scripture is inspired, it's the idea that the Spirit of God, what the Spirit of God wanted to be written, was written. What God wanted written was written. And so we seek to be driven by the Word of God, the written Word of God. Now, some examples, and if you have your notes, the notes I think now are gone. They were on my left, on your right, on the counter. But I think they're all gone. So as we look at this first point, let's consider some examples. And the first example, that is being driven by the Word, go ahead and turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Now, it's been probably, I don't know, two years since we've been in Genesis chapter 1. And just briefly, by way of illustration, I want to talk about the word day in Genesis. Again, what we're talking about right at the moment is we should be driven by the word of God. Because it is God's word. It is God's narrative, God's interpretation on the whole universe. What does it mean to be driven by God's word? Well, let's look at Genesis 1 as an example. Over and over and over again in Genesis 1, it talks about the God created the earth in six days. And it uses the word day, like in verse 5, Genesis 1. And it will use day over and over and over and over again. Now, there are Christian scholars and Christian pastors that will say day here. These are Christians. There are some Christian pastors, preachers, theologians, scholars that will say day here doesn't mean a 24-hour period, but it means an... An eon. It means a thousand years. It could mean a million years. It might mean a billion years. Well, is that accurate? If you read their books, their commentaries, usually, ultimately, they get to the place where they say, and they, they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, they believe the Bible is inspired, but ultimately, they'll get to the place where they'll say, Current scientific evidence says that the earth was a billion years old. That's what current scientific evidence says. Science is science. You gotta trust the science. Science says the earth is a billion years old. And then we have here, Genesis 1 says day. So what do you do? Who do you believe? Well, if you believe that God's word is true, it's right, it's perfect, that God, what he wanted written was written, then we have a problem. How do we understand the word day then in Genesis 1? Because it's clear, you just read Genesis 1 and it says day many, 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 many times. And so at least for the Christian then he has to struggle, she has to struggle with this this interpretation of the word day. Now you can go back and listen to the sermons that we have on this about two years ago, but let me just share a, a few things. If you were to take a Hebrew dictionary and look up the word day, it means thousands and thousands of times a 24-hour period. That's what it means. Now there are times when you might have 
a preposition with the word day. It's yom or yom in Hebrew. You might have in that day. Like I, I, I might say back in the day when I used to play baseball. Well, I didn't play baseball just for one day. I played baseball for, for three, four years in Little League. But that's a certain phrase, back in the day. And so sometimes you'll have that throughout the Old Testament, like the day of the Lord. Well, that's a special phrase. Here in Genesis, first we would say the word day throughout the Bible usually means like thousands of times, 24-hour period. But then when you look at Genesis 1, it says morning and evening. Like in Genesis 1-5. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Okay, well that's clarifying exactly the nature of the word day. Not only that, but then you have sequence. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day. Not only that, but in, in Hebrew, when you have the word and, it's in Hebrew, W-A-W, wa. And then when you have what's called the imperfect verb, it's describing something historically that happened. And this happened. And, and you see it throughout this section, right? And this happened. And then, and then this happened. And God did this. And God did this. First, second, third, fourth, day, 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 evening and morning. So all that to say that there is overwhelming evidence to say that Genesis 1 is saying day means day. Day means a, a basic 24-hour period. That's basically what it means. Like it says, the fifth day in Genesis 1.23. So what I'm saying is we have to be careful that we're not driven by false narratives that the world takes up and makes it sound very sophisticated. There, there is, uh, even theologically, if you were to believe that God did not, or you'll see it's not, could not, but he chose not to create the world in six days, you'd, that's just not scientifically feasible. Is it scientifically feasible that anybody can rise from the dead? Is that feasible? Will any pagan scientists say, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? No. <laughs> Are you going to discount the resurrection? The whole universe, the Bible says, the whole universe, God is going to dissolve, read the end of the book of Revelation, pretty quickly. Is it going to take God billions of years to dissolve the whole earth, the whole universe? No, it's not. So what I am saying is that we have to be careful, careful of Christians. Yes, we want to think. We want to be intelligent, but we want to thank our thoughts and our intelligence in submission to God. And when I say that, I don't even mean to the church. There's a curtain trend. I, I have a friend who, no, I shouldn't say a friend, really an acquaintance, who believes that when you take the Lord's Supper, which we will be taking, that Jesus Christ is present in the actual elements. That when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my, my blood, that Jesus is really there in a very mystical way. So how he, he would believe, how you get ministered to, is that when you partake of those elements, that, that 
Jesus in some mystical way is over or with or in, and that's going to minister to you and give you grace. The evidence that he gave was that the church has believed that for 1,500 years. The church can believe whatever it wants to. For 1,500 years, almost they almost entire, in quotes, church, believed that you were saved by works and not by faith. In other words, we, we're not driven by some type of church authority. We're not driven by scientific authority that rejects God. We should be driven by the Bible, by the Word of God. We can even consider this in a moral way. Should you be anxious? And I've heard it said, I've heard some people say, but that's just the way God made me. (laughs) That's the way I'm put together. I don't really know how God put you together except by what's written in the Bible, but I do know the Bible says don't be anxious. Philippians 4, 6. Maybe you were to say, you know, this person has sinned so much against me, I can't forgive them. I've had enough of them. I've had enough of their sin. I'm done. If you're a believer, no, you're not. (laughs) If you're a believer, you don't have an option not to forgive. You're commanded to forgive, Ephesians 4.32. And if you don't forgive, then actually you may not be a believer. Forgive one another, Ephesians 4.32. So what I'm saying that the Bible says is that the Bible gives you and I a script to follow, and we can't edit the script. You'll get in trouble from the writer, from the author, and from the producer, and from the director, and that's all the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how is this done? There's some examples, but how is this done? That is, how, how can I, how can you be more driven by the Bible and not by all kinds of fake narratives that the world and even an unbelieving or, un- or compromising church may, may teach? How can we be more driven by the Bible? Now, I'm not being sarcastic or flippant or trying to be funny, but number one, read the Bible. You have to read it. Now, I say that, and I... I have to work hard to read the Bible, especially on vacation. I, I have to work hard to actually read the Bible. It's my job to to study and prepare, but outside of that, to read the Bible, I have to work hard to do that. And I know that you do too, and I know that some of you aren't reading the Bible, most likely, and, and you're believers, and, and you don't even read the Bible. Go back to this illustration of you're an actor, maybe in a play, maybe in a movie, and you've been given a script. And the writer, the director, producer says, read this, memorize it, be ready to go. And you come to work and you don't know your your lines, ever. Because you just took the script and threw it down on the ground and said, Well, at least I have it. I have the script. I'll just put it beside my bed. I'll put it beside the the bed lamp right there. I'll take it to the stage. But you never read it. What would happen? 
I imagine you'd get fired. Does it make sense to be a Christian and not read your Bible? It doesn't. Read your Bible. Number two, thinking about how to do this, develop a plan. There, there are so many different ways. We've talked about this many, many times. Read the Bible through in a year. There's so many different books, apps that you can buy now that you have absolutely believers, no excuse not to have a plan to read your Bible. God doesn't say you have to have a plan to read your Bible but you need to read your Bible. And sometimes if you have a plan, that's really helpful. If you just every day just pick something to read, you know what? That's a great place to start. Start there. But then get a plan. Maybe read through the book of John. Maybe read through the Psalms. But have a plan. Go online. Google. Duck, duck, go. Kayak. What all the different search engines are. Bible plan. Read the Bible. Have a plan. Study your Bible. Study your Bible. Again, there's so many resources. Blue, is it blue, blueletterbible.com? I, I've forgotten. Study light, light. By, again, there's hundreds. There's no excuse for you not to read your Bible, have a plan, and study your Bible. We just went over John Patton. And John Patton's not the only one. There's been thousands and thousands. Uh, some of my friends at Grace Community Church will go into a country, learn their verbal language, that culture, that tribe, that people group, they don't have an actual written down language. So these missionaries learn the language, they create an alphabet, and then they translate the Bible for them. And then they begin to make tools, tools, Bible tools for them to understand. We have so much more than any, than so many cultures of the whole world throughout all of time. There's no excuse for us not to be reading the Bible, studying the Bible, having a plan for the Bible. And you know what? Above, not above all that, but above it in terms of having done all that, based upon that, allow the Bible to inform you, to teach you, that you are directed by that. Another example, is that is being driven by the Bible. You've, you've studied it. You, you've been reading through the Gospels. You, your plan was to read through the Gospels in four months, right? Can you do that? Can you read through? Can you take this next month, July, and read Matthew, and then the next month, Mark, Luke, and John? Can you do that? I, I think so. Do that. That would be good. But let's apply that to something. That is, you've, you've read the four Gospels. And let's apply it to evangelism. And this will connect to the third point. The third main driven point here in this sermon. But let's say you want to apply this to evangelism. What I have seen in my years of being a Christian, I think now 40, is that Christianity is often propelled by popular Bible teachers. It seems. It seems. And what I mean is, especially in evangelism, there's always a new outline fad. So when I was in my later teenage years, the evangelism outline was EE, Evangelism Explosion. Okay? And I learned that frontwards, backwards, and forwards. 
Okay? That was from James Kennedy. Love that. It, w- it was very helpful. But now it's Ray Comfort and the Way of the Lamb. Very helpful. Uh, very good. But what can happen is if I wasn't careful and if other people aren't careful, then when I meet an individual, when I met in an individual, when some people meet an unbeliever, then we can have this prepared outline. And so when I want to give them the gospel, I'm going to give them my outline. I have it in my head and I'm going to go through my outline. Instead of being sensitive to the Spirit of God working in my mind and my heart. And instead of just having a, a rote memory prepared gospel presentation, I, I seek to be more like Jesus. And that when Jesus shared the gospel with Nicodemus, it was different than when he shared the gospel with the woman at the well, which was different than when he shared the gospel with the rich young ruler, which was different than he shared the truth with the Pharisees. It's good to have an outline. And it's good to start with an outline. But what I'm saying is be driven by the Bible is that you allow the whole word of God. You allow the whole Bible to direct you in these encounters that you have with individuals. So you're giving them the outline of God's word, the content of God's word. Another way you could say is with with marriage. You could do it with parenting. We're driven by the Bible and marriage. And I've shared this before, but with young couples, I try to ask, why do you want to get married to each other? And they will often say what? We love each other. We love each other. Okay. That's good. But what does that mean, to love each other? Because when you say, I do... Often when couples say, I, I want to get married because I love her, often you really are saying, I, not always, but often, I want to get married because I like to be loved. And oftentimes when couples say, I do, really they can be saying, I do allow this person to love me for the rest of my life. But Hebrews 5.25 and Titus 2.4 talk about loving the other spouse. In other words, marriage is not a, a th- this matrix of I'm to be loved. Marriage is about loving. Marriage is about me laying down my life for, for my wife. That's what marriage is about. I die to self, and for the rest of the days that I have on this earth, I love that person. It's not about me being loved. It's about me loving. And so I'm allowing the Bible then to direct however imperfectly, and I seek to improve, I'm allowing the Bible to drive marriage. I allow the Bible to teach me how to evangelize and to share the gospel. I allow the Bible to teach me how to parent. This is true of all of life. Perhaps I can see it this way. There's always new books. There's always new methods. And the Bible says that God has given gifted teachers to his church, and so we want to read those books as we can and as we're able and profit from them. But Psalm 119, 105 says, It's the word of God which is light to my path and a lamp unto my feet. We can profit from books written by Christian brothers and Christian sisters. 
But ultimately, we want what? The Bible. The Bible. Read it. Pray about what you read. Surrender. Be sure the Bible is driving you. Second, a second answer as to what's driving us is this. Since there is always grace for every right thing you need to do, be grace-driven. Grace. We need to be driven by God's grace. Listen to the Apostle Paul, knowing all that he accomplished. How did he accomplish all that he accomplished? All the churches he planted, all, all the suffering he went through. Look at 1 Corinthians 15.10. How did he do this? He says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, uh, 15, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul is saying, I worked really hard. I worked harder than all the other apostles. But three times he says, it was by grace. It was by grace. It was by grace. I worked hard. It was effective. But three times at least, grace, grace, grace. It was God's grace. Paul could have came up with many excuses. He could have said, my past got in the way, so I couldn't work really well. Barnabas and Mark kept getting in my way and bothering me. Peter got in my way. I had a thorn. I had a physical problem. And then there were false teachers. And then there was prison. And then I I died once. Then I was shipwrecked and got bit. This is crazy. I need a vacation. That's what Paul could have said. But instead, he labored really hard. He didn't have excuses. Instead, he accomplished a lot. Was he driven? Yes. But what does he say here he was driven by? Grace. 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 It was the grace of God. You and I can always find excuses to not get out of bed in the morning. You and I can always find excuses not to do that which we know we should do. We can always find excuses. Always. But here, Paul says, it was by grace, by God's grace. Because God will give you grace, and because you're in Christ, you can always do what God wants you to do, always. Whatever God commands you to do, he will give you the grace to do it, always. For example, refuge. Take refuge in the grace of God. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, 8. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Why should you get up every morning, every rainy day after rainy day? How can you do it? By the grace of God. How can you forgive somebody? By the grace of God. How can you read your Bible? By the grace of God. How can you overcome any sin? By the grace of God. How how can you love people that are unlovable? By the grace of God. And you take refuge in that grace. Let me just bring a few things out about 2 Corinthians 9.8. And it is truly remarkable. First it says, and God is able. The word able is from dunamis, dynamo, 
power, ability. So it says here, God has the ability to give you the grace that you need to do whatever he wants you to do. God is, he is able, he's capable, he has all that he needs to do to give you what you need to do. Second, God is able to make all grace. What does, in context, grace mean here? It means power and love. The free, unconditional power and love of God. The, the unmerited, the unearned, the, the undeserved power and love of God poured out in your life to where you, you did nothing in order to deserve or earn or merit God's power and love and favor upon your life, God decides to do it because he loves you, not because you are lovable, but because he decides to love you and to be with you. That's the grace of God. There was nothing inside of you or in me where God said, Oh, Tom is awesome. I'm drawn to him because of his awesomeness. It'd be the other way around. I I think we want to look at him because he's so sinful. He's disgusting. You know what? I'll save him by his grace because I can make a trophy of grace out of him. And so he gives free power and love and favor. Further, maybe you would say, okay, I don't have to do anything to earn this power and love and favor of God. I don't have to earn it and I can't merit it. It's not because I had five quiet times this week that God's going to give me grace. He gives me grace even when I don't have five quiet times. He's unwavering in his grace. But is it really enough? My sin is pretty bad. This person that I need to forgive, that I I need to love, this action that that I need to do, it's so difficult. Can can there be enough grace even to cover my sin or to cover this other person's sin or or to give me the energy to do what I need to do? Because it's so very difficult. But look back at the verse and note all these words, all, all, every, always, There's four or five times, I think in total, twice it says the word abound, and five times a form of all or every. And the word when it says abound is the idea of flooding. Like when the Mississippi River, it really rains, and the Mississippi River overfloods the the banks of the land, and it just almost like a tidal wave. That's the idea when it says eight, abound, and to innovate, have an abundance for every good deed. It's not that, let's say, you need to, you're in a situation and you choose by God's grace not to lie. You're at work and there's a lot of pressure put on you just to lie about something. And if you don't do it, maybe you could get fired, lose your job. How are you going to support your family? This text is saying God will give you not just the amount you need to tell the truth. He will give up and beyond and above what you need. Maybe it's to say no to lust. God is saying in this verse, he will not just give you just the exact amount to say no to that lust. He will give you above and beyond the power and the love and the favor that you need. That's what the word abound and abundance. And it doesn't matter whatever God wants you to do. 
whatever the situation. That's why it says, for every good deed. For whatever thing that God wants you to do, whether it's an action or an attitude, he will give you an overwhelming amount of power and love and favor and ability to do it. Now, is that true or not? Is Second Corinthians 9, 8 truth or is it a lie? It's truth. So if I sin, it's not because only or simply that sin was overpowered me. That, that temptation of sin can be very strong, very powerful. But it's not just that. It's that I was not trusting, taking refuge in the grace of God. But perhaps my own strength, my own knowledge. Take refuge in the grace of God. This is why I think we have, one of the reasons why we have Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. Oh, taste and see that God is good. How blessed are all those who take what? Refuge in him. We take refuge in God, especially in his grace. Take refuge in it. Meditate on it. That is, meditate on this verse. Again, my mind is porous. Do you know how many times I've tried to memorize word for word Second Corinthians nine eight? Probably fifteen times. Let me see. And God can make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency for an abundance for every good deed. See, I, I got some words wrong. It doesn't matter how many times I try to memorize it; I'll get something wrong. But you know what? I'm going to keep memorizing it because I think it is one of the most powerful, comforting, encouraging, enabling verses in the Bible. Meditate on it. Memorize it. M-U-L-L. That means ruminate over it. Ponder it. Hide it in your heart. I I didn't bring it with me, but I, I love fishermen's friends. Do you guys know what fishermen's friends are? They are the most powerful organic cough drops ever invented by man. To burn a hole right through your tongue or your cheek. And they're fantastic. I just ran out of a pack. Sometimes if you think my breath is feeling like really uh, organically menthol and harsh, that's probably because of fishermen's friends. Because I, even if I don't have a, an aching or scratchy throat, I, I just like to down them. I don't know what it is. I just and just suck on it. And then it's that menthol, organic, just, it's like an explosion. Mm. That's what you should do with 2 Corinthians 9.8. In fact, some nights, if my throat's been feeling a little bit scratchy, I'll take the fisherman's friend and I'll just like stick it back here. Just between my cheek and my teeth. And it's just like the whole evening, it's just like power. That's what we do with 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Memorize on it. Meditate on it. Be thinking about it all the day. Pray through it about yourself. Sometimes we can say, how can I pray for this person? I don't know what to pray for. Pray 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Pray that for them. And then practice it. Find something that's really hard for you to do. Find something that's really hard for you to do. That is a Christian thing to do. 
and then pray, Second Corinthians 9, 8, and then do it, and then go for it. I can remember years ago when I was doing EE, Evangelism, Evangelism Explosion, there was a, and you know, you'd go out in teams of two or three, there was this woman who was very scared about evangelizing. She didn't want to talk to anybody in public, especially about the gospel. But she thought she should take this class in order to overcome that fear. And when we would practice sharing the gospel, she would visibly shake her hands. She would stumble everywhere. She really had a bad case of fear. So several nights we went out and we would just, my friend and I would just have her stand with us, not evangelizing yet. After about the fourth or fifth time, during the course of he and I talking to this other person, I just said, what do you think, Mary? And it was, she just went for it. And it was amazing. It's like, I wish I could talk that way to people. <laughs> she did a great job. How did that happen? She, she just took a step. I, I'm going to grow out with these other people. I've been taught. I've been trained. I practice. I, I'm, I'm just going to take a step. And we helped her a little bit. And, and then she took a step. And it was powerful. I can remember a true acquaintance of mine. I wouldn't say a friend, but an acquaintance of mine. Probably, and I have to be careful of saying the name. It's nobody here. I have to be careful about saying too much. but Because I don't want him to hear me. Probably the most neatest, cleanliest, fastidious person I've ever met. So if I borrowed a pen or I used a pen and would give it back to him, he wouldn't take it back because of germs. No, I'm serious. Or he would wipe it down, then he would take it. So I heard that he wanted to come to India. <laughs> oh, so you know, see, John knows. You know, very, very, uh, is fastidious the right word? I don't know. Very cleanly detailed individual. And he wanted to come to India. And he went to India. And he did a really good job and loved his time in one of the most dirtiest countries in the world. How did he do that? It's the grace of God. God's grace. God will give us grace to whatever we need to do. And I think you've probably seen that in your life. God will give you the grace. What does God, according to the word that we just talked about, want you to do? Seek to do that. God will give you the grace for it. I and my kids and my wife know this to my shame. I don't always fulfill my promises, but God does. He'll be there for you with his grace. Now I have to rush it to point number three because of time. Point number three. The third answer to what should drive us is, is Jesus. Since Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure in the whole universe, be driven by him, be, be motivated by him, be directed by him, be energized by him. 
And I think, in large part, this is what Colossians 3.17 is aiming at. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What is it that keeps you going? What is it that, that keeps you going when, especially as you get older, you hear this person died, this person died, this person died, this person died. My roommate's wife just died, younger than me. People die, people die. People leave the faith. Tragic things happen. How do we keep going? By the Bible, by the grace of God, and by looking at Jesus. By looking at Jesus. Who really makes you complete? The, the, the truth is, I, I don't complete Lisa. Jesus does. I, I don't. It's Jesus. Who do you live for? Ultimately, who do you live for? Paul said, for me to live is who? Christ. Who are you making a name for? Yourself or Jesus? Look back at Colossians 3.17 and consider this text. Whatever you do and what or deed, do all in the name of Jesus. All in the name of the Lord Jesus. These things I'm saying, some of them are not new, and I've talked about them before, but these are things that have been on my heart the past week during vacation, and even this verse has... And trying to understand, how do you do an action in the name of the Lord Jesus? How do I love my wife in the name of the Lord Jesus? So is it when I'm washing the dishes, do I say, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus? Lisa, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus. I take out the garbage. Hey, honey, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I take out the garbage. Is that what this verse means? I mean, I'm serious. What, what does it mean? And I think if we're not careful, I can just read by it. Well, what is Paul saying? Well, remember, in the book of Colossians, he's been talking a lot about Jesus Christ and the power and the glory and all the treasure that Jesus Christ is. He created all things and holds all things together. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17, he is the head of the body. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. I think the idea, therefore, when he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, first is is the idea, name at times can be associated with fame. Romans 1, 5, Paul talks about his apostleship was for the, the name's sake uh, of Jesus, that is to make Jesus, his greatness, now, clear to be more easily seen and, and known. And I think that's part of 317. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name. Do it in the sense that his name will be lifted up. So it's not that if I'm washing dishes, taking out the, the garbage, cleaning the house, mowing the yard, whatever needs to be done. It's not that I'm glory, glory. I do all that I do in the name of Jesus. But rather, I, I do it in such a way seeking to be humble with my whole heart and with happiness without having to have anybody tell me this needs to be done. I seek to do it. 
with humility and surrender and happiness. And that makes Jesus look to be who he truly is. And whatever action that I'm doing. I think also it means if I do it in the name of Jesus, whatever that might, that might be, maybe it's loving somebody, maybe it's evangelizing, maybe, maybe it's taking a sandwich to the homeless, whatever I'm doing, to do it in the name of Jesus doesn't mean necessarily, I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong to say in the name of the Lord Jesus, but it, this verse is not saying if I'm helping a homeless person, I don't give that person a sandwich, and right before I hand it to them, I say, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then I, I give it to them. That's not what this verse is saying. But rather it's saying, I'm doing this in order to exalt him, but I'm doing this out of his righteousness. I'm not doing this to make me righteous. I'm doing it in the name. And all that he accomplished by his character and by his life and his death and resurrection, I'm doing all this activity out of his righteousness that's been placed to my account. Praise God. That's what I think. This is saying, because it's in him is all the treasures. You can see this in Colossians 2, 2, the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am complete in Christ. I have all that I need. So I'm not helping people, loving people. I'm not seeking to do anything because I need people. Because I have who? Jesus. So I'm not seeking for my wife, my kids, for you, the congregation, to, to applaud me. I'm not. Forever and forever, what I want is the smile of God and Jesus. So I do it in his name for his glory. I, I think that's what Colossians three seventeen is primarily saying. Now, time is fleeting, so I'm not going to go into all these texts, but I will give them to you. First Peter 2, 6. Philippians 3, 7 through 9. John 17, 3. Uh, I would just mention them briefly. Philippians 3, 7 through 9 is, I consider all things to be garbage in order that I may know Christ. John 17, 3 is, this is eternal life, to know the only true God and the one he sent, Jesus Christ. Based upon those verses and Colossians, the Bible teaches that the core and the point of Christianity is that you have a, a deep personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's really how you get to heaven. And John talked about this to me in Sunday school. As you say, I, I can't save myself. I'm a sinful person. If I had a thousand billion years to try to be good enough to get to heaven, I still couldn't get to heaven. I need Jesus and his perfect life and righteousness and death and resurrection. I need all that he did laid to my account. Jesus, will you do that and will you save me? All who call upon the Lord shall be saved. And that's what Christianity is. You you value him and what he did above all things. So in a marriage, at church, at work, at play, and all that you do, though you do it imperfectly, we seek to, to trust and exalt and value above all who? Jesus Christ. He's Savior and Lord. 
So several examples here as we come to the end of this sermon. There is a difference between hero worship and having heroes of the faith. There's a difference between hero worship and heroes of the faith. We must be sure that we know Jesus Christ and are more impressed with him than any preacher or missionary. What happens in Christianity, and that sometimes this can contribute to people falling away from the faith, is that some missionaries, preachers, or celebrities are held in more esteem than Jesus Christ. To where you or I or others may be tempted to want to hear and to read the words and books of all these famous preachers, even more than Jesus. And then perhaps that leader falls or makes a mistake and then people can get bitter. We have to be careful. We want to be in a righteous and holy way, intoxicated, that is, consumed and obsessed with who? Christ Jesus. There is no Savior except for Jesus Christ. There is no life and resurrection except for Jesus Christ. No living mortal can truly say, I am the life and the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no pastor, no missionary that has ever or will ever achieve that status. But I think at times, and I think I have at times in my life, almost treated other Christian missionaries and preachers as if they were a savior. I have to hear from them. I have to hear from them. I have to, I have to hear from that person the word. Yeah, that person. God has gifted people and God raised up, God raises up individuals to lead large congregations and even movements. But we must be very careful that we ourselves don't give all of our attention and all of our soul and support and ears to this human individual. They're sinners. They're redeemed and they're saints, but they're not the bread of life. That's only Jesus Christ. Be driven by Jesus. Don't be driven by Calvin, MacArthur, Piper, whoever it is. Don't be driven by them. I will fail you. I... I've failed. If I haven't failed you yet, I will. If you're somewhat new here, I will fail you. I will sin against you. There's only one that won't fail you and won't sin against you, and that's Jesus Christ, the Lord. Again, I have to protect the innocent. There's a very close friend of mine that went to a new church for her. She went to a new church. And the people at, the, at this church kept quoting Matthew. You know, Matthew says this. Matthew said this over and over and over again throughout the course of the weeks and months. They, they just kept saying, these say, you know, as, as Matthew says. So she would, oops, I think, <laughs> as she would go to the, the book of Matthew, that name wasn't found. 
the, 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 those verses, that content. People at their church would say, Matthew has said, Matthew says. So she would go to the book of Matthew and those things weren't in the book of Matthew. She didn't understand what's, what are they saying? Well, the pastor of the church, his name was what? Matthew. So it wasn't that they were quoting the book of Matthew. They were quoting the pastor. It's not wrong to quote a pastor. But as a church and as a person, we have to be careful that our hearts aren't, this human says, this human says, this human says, and this situation, this human says, and this situation, this human says, this pastor says, this missionary says, this book says. What does Jesus say? What does the word of God say? Again, it's not wrong to quote a pastor, but may we be individuals and churches that are this precious value. What does the word of God say? What does Jesus say? What does the, the, the truth, the, the word of truth say? Let's be certain that we are obsessed and consumed with who Christ is. And the reality is we disobey and, and fall, and where we do, there's forgiving grace. Now, as we end, there are many things that push and pull to be the driver of your life. Many things. And under the grace of God, it's up to you what drives your life. It's up to you what drives your life. What are you going to have drive your life? Now, when we started this message, we said that there is a Basically, almost a mission statement, a motto, kind of a, a principle of life. If you want success, then you have to be a driven person. And in one sense, that can be spiritually true. It's just what drives you. That is, if the Bible, the grace of God, and Jesus Christ drive you, you will have unimaginable success. Brothers and sisters, if by grace, you allow the Bible, God's grace, the Word of God, the grace of God, and Jesus Christ, who is God, to drive you. You will have so much unimaginable success that it will take God forever and forever and forever and forever to show you that success in heaven. You will have so much success that you will have to spend forever in heaven enjoying all the success you will have. If the Bible, the grace of God, and Jesus Christ drives you. That's what Ephesians 2.9 says. Sorry, Ephesians 2.7. It would take forever to experience all the wonderful riches God has for you when you're driven by those three answers. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the kind attention of these people, Lord. I pray that you would bless them with your grace, Lord, and with your mercy. Lord, may we be driven by the Bible, by grace, and by Jesus. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.